Thank you, as always, to our music team for leading us in song. Yeah, one clap. <laughs> we just sang that line, hallelujah, forever we will sing. And that line I, I always appreciate because it's also one of the only lines that we all sing as a church now, too, uh, because it's a, a transliteration. Uh, it's not an English word. And so if, if you go to uh, the church in Japan, you might not understand anything in that song until they say, Alleluia, with a Japanese accent. And if you go to Brazil, you may not understand anything in the song until they say, Alleluia, with a Brazilian accent. Or, even thinking about countries like the Ukraine where the believers are suffering uh, through the war that is tearing that country apart, they are singing Alleluia. And so that is a, a unique word that unites Christianity around the world. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if that one gets brought up into whatever language we speak in the world to come or not. We'll find out. This morning, uh, we'll be looking at a a fascinating text uh, in Scripture. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. And Paul's going to be continuing to lay out an argument he's been laying out for a while. And he's doing something that a lot of, a lot of parents do uh, when they're dealing with a problem that is, is not uncommon, and that is children acting in a way that seems to be completely detached from reality. Uh, unaware of what's going on around them and uh, what they ought to be doing, doing given their current context. And sometimes parents employ what I call the existential ploy, uh, where, you, where you ask the question, who do you think you are right now? <laughs> right? Anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever had a, a parent or somebody to say, and who do you think you are right now? As a way of saying, I think you've become disconnected from some very fundamental realizations about your identity. Otherwise, there's no explanation for what you're doing. And, and that is something that Paul has been employing and employs very skillfully this morning in our text is saying we need to get back and touch base on some fundamental truths that you apparently have become unmoored from because otherwise, how do you explain what you're doing right now? And I want you to turn with me and look at this passage. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd even invite you to stand to honor the reading of it. We'll be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. And so follow along with me, <clears throat> beginning in verse 16. Do you not know... Oh, excuse me, I forgot. I used the wrong translation. I'm reading from the New American Standard, but give me a moment while I switch to the New American Southern, <laughs> which is important. <laughs> there you go, which is important for our passage. Do y'all not know that y'all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what y'all are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless." 
So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to y'all. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to y'all, and y'all belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this simple passage and yet uh, a, a truth in it that is at once foundational and yet in some ways surprising and sweeping in its implications. I pray that you would help us to understand who we are in Christ in such a way that that our view of the gospel and of your, and your goodness uh, reaches to the edges of the universe itself and beyond, right into the throne room of heaven, and that our gratitude and realization of that fact would move back down into our lives and into our circumstances, that we might be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ and to walk in holy obedience as we ought to, for your glory and for our good. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're looking at your notes this morning, it's a simple outline, three doctrines to defeat divisions. As we've been looking in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing a whole bunch of issues going on in the church in Corinth. They're struggling with a lot of things that don't belong in a church. One of the first that he's been focusing on, and he's kind of taught on it, and then moved away for a little bit, and then come back and taught on it some more, and he's continuing, is this issue of quarreling and factions among the church, that they're fighting and they're, they're dividing themselves up into, I'm of Paulos, and I'm of Cephas, or Peter, and, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Christ, and you know, they're doing that, that whole deal. And he's saying, hey, we need to get this fixed because what you're doing right now is putting the entire project that God is doing in your midst under attack and under threat. And he begins here in verse 16 by continuing to teach on this and by, by giving us these doctrines by saying, do you not know? And this is a fun phrase for Paul. It's also a phrase that Paul reserves almost exclusively for Corinth. If you read through 1 Corinthians, you will notice Paul uses this phrase, do you not know? Ten times. This is the first. And if you read all the rest of the letters in the New Testament, you will notice Paul used that phrase exactly one other time to the church in Rome. So this is a phrase he uses almost exclusively with the Corinthians. And as I was reading the commentaries, it was interesting. They, you know, they're very reserved. And they say, Paul uses this phrase when he appears to be somewhat exercised on the topic. This is not how Paul introduces intricate theology, right? He's, this is not how he says, all right, follow me. I've got this big logical thing I want to lay out for you. This is how he goes, what is going on? <laughs> this is simple. You should know this. And so when you see that, do you not know, he's not primarily saying, as I referred to in my previous letter, or as I taught you previously, he's saying, this is something that is so foundational and so obvious. Everybody should know it. How is it that the way you're acting is such a contradiction of what you should be believing? And by introducing these doctrines to deal with their divisions, I think he's underscoring what is a really important point for us as a church to remember, and that is our first lesson this morning, that theology is practical. I didn't give you your first point. Ha! Huh. Sorry, for those of you who are doing your outlines, you're like, my blanks. Our conduct must be holy in verses 16 to 17. Our conduct must be holy. Our first observation under that is that theology is practical. What we know and we believe will inevitably shape how we live. 
That's how theology is supposed to work. Theology, what we know about God, what we understand about truth. In fact, the word doctrine just means teaching. So when we say three doctrines to deal with divisions, to defeat them, we're just talking about three teachings, three pieces of truth that when comprehended and understood ought to have a practical effect in our lives. And I, I think in many cases behind so many sinful patterns in our lives, there is defective theology in the background. Defective theology, and it's of different kinds. I think sometimes we just have shallow theology, and we don't really understand what's going on. We, we sort of remember a few of the things we learned in Sunday school, at least the parts that rhymed or had a cool melody. But we've never stopped to meditate, to really work that truth down into our soul, to, to understand God's Word and consider the implications of what God has said. And it's amazing to find out how much truth is contained in those Sunday school songs if we will mine them out. So sometimes our theology is just too shallow. Sometimes I think the problem is that our theology is considered less valuable than the alternative. Right? We, we come and we say, okay, I know God's probably going to tell me I need to deal with my sin and he's going to call what I'm doing wrong and he's going to get into my kitchen and make me change. But there's this book that I saw at the counter in Walmart and I don't have to do any of that stuff. It told me I'm pretty amazing. It told me that the problem is somebody else's fault. And it told me that I should feel good about myself. So I understand that theology. I just don't like it. So I think sometimes we reject the theology we know because we prefer the lie that is a more attractive alternative. And thirdly, and perhaps most embarrassingly, sometimes we simply are completely ignorant of what God has said entirely, and we are sinning without even noticing. We're trying to figure out why all of a sudden the world around us has gotten so scary and confusing. It's because we've walked past 50 signs that said no trespassing without noticing them because we didn't take the time to read what God has said. So for many reasons, I believe that behind a lot of the things that we are struggling with is defective theology. Not primarily that we just haven't learned the nine tips we need to memorize to have a happy and successful life, but we haven't learned the unchanging truths that define reality in a way that makes our path of obedience clear and attractive. Paul may not be entirely sure which bucket all the Corinthians land in, but he definitely can tell that their theology is off just by watching how they're living and looking at their actions. And Paul knows exactly what Bible lessons the Corinthians need to revisit to get them back on track. And what a blessing for Corinth that God would have given to them a man like Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit indeed, but a man who loved them truly and would minister that truth in their lives. And I wonder for how many of us we, we could mention the people in our lives that are like that. I hope you have people in your life that the kind of people that will indeed try to understand what's really going on in your heart, not just your circumstances, but what's really going on in your heart, and who also know Scripture enough to find that truth that you need in the moment for what you're dealing with. They can apply it almost with an uncanny accuracy. I know there's people in this church that have been that to me and have ministered truth to me in many ways. They have the insight of a skilled doctor making a diagnosis, and, and they also have just this vast scriptural pharmacy from which to dispense truth according to the needs of the moment. Find people like that. Build relationships with people like that. If you're of the right age, marry people like that. Find somebody to be a life partner with you who will minister truth to you 
in ways that are in accordance with the word of God. Desire that you would be a person like that and be a blessing to others. And so Paul is surveying this church in Corinth, the tolerated sin and the quarreling factions that are going on there. And he says, these are things you should know. And let's begin with this. And he starts with this point. Continue looking with me there. Do you not know that you, y'all, are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And notice Paul begins here by going straight to truth and to truth that is true regardless of how the Corinthians feel about it or even how the Corinthians are acting. He doesn't say, do you not know that you all are just so obedient? Right? Because that's, that's actually not true at the moment. Right? That comes and goes depending on what they're doing every day. But he says, do you not know that there's something that is true about you all the time as believers? And that that truth is what should be shaping what happens in your lives. And the truth is that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. These are things that they should know because they, the very fact that they are things that can't change and which apply in every case to the believer that he is addressing. When he uses this temple language, it's good for us to pause and, and be reminded of what this temple imagery is all about. Temple or perhaps you know, more precisely sanctuary here. It's the place where God makes his presence manifest. The place where he dwells in a unique relational way among his creation. And if we remember our Old Testaments, God has done that in a number of, of unique ways, especially since the fall when he no longer walked with us openly in the garden. Think back to the tabernacle when God dwelt among his people in that great moving tent. The presence of Yahweh there about the Ark of the Covenant and over the mercy seat through the wilderness, the conquering of Cain in the time of the judges, the tabernacle then being replaced by that awe-inspiring temple of Solomon, that temple then later being destroyed as a judgment upon the nation of Israel for their unfaithfulness, and then rebuilt to a lesser degree in the days of Nehemiah, and you'll recall the young men at that time were celebrating and shouting and praising, we have a temple! And the old people were weeping because they remembered how glorious it used to be. Fast forward to the New Testament and so many of the events in the life of Jesus and the disciples are taking place in that third and final temple in the Bible until the, uh, the end times. For third and final temple in the Bible, the impressive architectural accomplishments of Herod that he had added on to that temple mount one of those great ironies in history that a man so wicked would have made an architectural statement out of a temple to worship the God he so flaunted. But there is an even grander sense of the temple of God than you'll see simply in buildings and in places. In the language of Isaiah 66, that was quoted by both Jesus and by Stephen in the New Testament, God declares... Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. You want to know where I make my presence manifest? Try everywhere. The cosmos is my temple. That is the sphere of my presence in a grand sense. But there's another level in which God's temple is made among his creation. And that is part of the blessings of being in Christ in the New Testament age. In fact, as Paul will teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, which we'll get to when we get to it, our body is a temple and must be treated accordingly. He says we are to understand that our body, our, even our physical body, is a place in which, as 
as, as a place where the Holy Spirit is indwelling, it ought to be regarded as a temple and treated as such. And of course, that's given rise to a million Christian dieting books. But that's not what Paul's talking about in our passage this morning. There is yet another level at which the temple picture is appropriate, and Paul is applying it there. And notice the language that he uses as he makes this point. We, and I learned this this morning, I, I, I was trying to figure out there's y'all and there's all y'all, but what do you say for we all? And I was informed after first service, it is usins. Usins. So if you prefer, you can write, we are a temple as your lesson, or if you really want to get down to it, you can say usins. Usins are or usins is? Is? Usins is a temple. Okay. Notice the language. Paul says, you all are a temple. Not individuals, but you collectively, there in Corinth, the church in Corinth I'm writing to, you all are not the temple. You are a temple. You are not a bunch of temples. You are singularly a temple, all of you together. The church at Corinth should understand that their fellowship of believers constitutes a temple. And not an empty temple. You remember in the Old Testament, there was that tragic scene when God finally had that Ichabod moment, right? The glory has departed. He took his manifesting presence out of his temple. He said, I am no longer dwelling among you as I did because you have rejected me so utterly. And so now I am departing. And the temple turned into just an empty box. This is not that kind of temple. As sinful as this church is being, as dysfunctional as this church is being, Paul says, you are a temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you right now. It is an occupied temple. It is where indeed God's presence is being manifest. They're not a temple also in some unique way because they're Corinthians. They're a temple because they are a gathering of Christians, which means that this category we're studying is not something that was just true of these people. It's true of, of us as well. We here at Valley Bible Church are a temple of God, not just as individuals, but in a unique way as a gathering of believers in the context of a local church. Not this building, just steel frame building, but as People in whom the Spirit of God dwells, gathering as a local church of God, there is a unique way in which corporately we are a temple. And not our church. That's true of all the other faithful churches that are preaching the gospel and holding to God's word in our city and around the world. Remember watching once the TV chef Alton Brown standing before his backyard grill and he said, uh, this is a grill. There are many like it, but this one is mine. And then he showed how to make a really yummy steak. This church is a temple. There are many like it, but this one is usens. This one is ours. And it is a temple in which the very Spirit of God is present among his people. That's a powerful thought. And Paul sets that truth up so that it would really hit home when he gives us the therefore. 
You are a temple. Therefore, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. What guy? Well, the guy or gal who would dare enter into a holy place and try to tear down what God is building up. Look at verse 17. You all are a temple. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This is the practical application of the theological principle. If the church is a temple, and it is, again, not the building, the people, and if God is present there, and he is, then we had best consider our conduct when we are in such a holy place. In this immediate context, Paul is pointing out that if the people are a temple and the factions in the church are dividing the people, then the factions in the church are tearing down the temple, right? You see the logic there? He's like, you're breaking apart this thing that God has put together. They might as well have been running into the holy sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem with a sledgehammer and just gone to town on the walls. Paul's reframing their conflict by swapping bad theology with good theology. They thought they were establishing an obvious hierarchy of spiritual superiority. They, they thought they were proving which little slice of their spiritual world was better than all the others and that they were just going to establish the simple facts. And Paul says, what you're doing is about as dumb as proving that the roof is your favorite by knocking down the walls. But it's even worse than that. If you went to your own home and tore it down, I mean, it's a free country. Have fun with that. But there should be a surgeon general warning against messing with the dwelling place of the Most High God. It should say, warning, may cause immediate death by acute deity. Destroy the dwelling place of God where he makes his unique presence manifest and God will bring you to destruction it says you introduce factions you introduce divisions into the church and a little little side note here he's not talking about addressing heresy for example if i showed up on a sunday and i said you know what i have i've just come to this conviction that jesus is not the messiah so there was this really interesting article in the newspaper this week we'll talk about that instead you would not be introducing factions in this church by saying next week one of us needs to be gone. Right? Because I am no longer a part of the church that God is building if I have rejected the Messiah upon which the church is built. That's not what we're talking about. But if over issues of, of preference, over the petty desires of our own hearts, of, of our own human wisdom, if things that are not sin are things that we are choosing to break relationships over and cause factions. Do not be surprised if God starts taking your life apart piece by piece. I mean, and literally, right? Paul's going to have to write to these guys in a few chapters, God has done this to such an extent he killed some of you for doing this in this church. And if you think that's an overstatement, it hardly is because because that word destroy is about as tame in Greek as it is in English. God will destroy you. We're not talking about losing salvation here. 
We're talking about how God takes it very seriously when a person would come into his family and say, I'm going to start splitting this thing up. And God says, no, you're not. I will undo you first. I think that makes a lesson pretty obvious. Treat as holy what is holy. Treat as holy what is holy. Why is this all being taken so seriously? Well, it is because the church is the dwelling place of God, and God is holy. And those two facts together are about as airtight of a case as you can make. God hallows where he dwells. You can recall, perhaps, out in the Middle East, a lonely hill covered with dirt and sand and a little unassuming bush. Until the creator God of the universe decided to make his particular presence manifest in that bush in the form of a non-consuming fire. And then all of a sudden, that dirt and that dust turned into holy ground. And Moses was told, you better take your sandals off before you get close to this bush because that dirt now is holy ground because my presence is here. If we really believe that the church is the people and that the people of God are indwelt by his Holy Spirit and that God is present among his church in a unique way such that we are a temple of God, then wow, we really need to be careful what we're doing, what we're thinking when we waltz in here together every Sunday, don't we? Is it unholy? Is it inappropriate if in the context of our church service there are disruptions from crying children? No. No, that's actually a good thing. That's a sign of life. How about Caleb wearing a hat in church? I see you've taken it off, so so that's good. Is that what Paul's targeting? Probably not. You all know where I stand on wearing a tie to church every Sunday. (laughs) Paul is not primarily targeting the issues as they appear on the outside. The fighting and the quarreling that's happening on the outside is the symptom. What Paul is targeting is what we bring into the church on the inside when we bring a factious heart, when we bring a quarreling heart, when we bring a sinful heart, when we bring a scheming heart, when we bring a selfish heart, when we bring a heart that is so saturated in the wisdom of this world that it will not worship the God that made it. That's what he's targeting. And he says, if you're going to bring that into God's church and that's going to start leaking out into your relationships and into what impact you're having on God's family, he, he will destroy you. And so he goes on then to address our thinking because if God is going to take our holy conduct as a church so seriously, we can only live in a holy way together if we learn to think in a holy way together. So look at verses 18 to 20. Our thinking must be humble. Paul begins in verse 18 there, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And that's now a familiar theme. We've been studying that for quite some time. Either Paul is having trouble remembering that he just said this, or it's so important he feels like he needs to keep saying it over and over. And notice Paul repeats, 
here that if any man language that he just used after laying down the principle that applies to everyone, we are God's temple. He's now going through and saying, as part of God's temple, you as an individual have a responsibility before God to conduct yourself among his people in a way that is careful and godly. And so just as you don't want to be that guy tearing down the temple, you don't want to be this guy who would bring falsehood into the church in the name of wisdom. And recall that a major reason for the divisions in the church at Corinth was this clash of worldviews that was going on. You had the the Jewish worldview still sitting there with its emphasis on legalism, constantly trying to add works back into what Christ had accomplished. And you had the Corinthian worldview that had this open license for sin and a sense of free grace and a fascination with rhetoric and with soaring language and the, uh, the categories of wisdom from the culture. And Paul says, if you're going to be able to be the people of God that he's called you to be, if you're going to have a temple that befits the God who dwells there, you need to start from scratch in how you think about reality. And Paul knew what it was like to have the rug pulled out from underneath him intellectually. He had to take all of his assumptions and all of his categories of thought and experience, and he had to have a great reset when he came to Christ and not a, I should drag these files to a different folder kind of reset, but a, are you sure you want to reformat this drive? All content will be lost forever kind of reset. Because the revelation of God in Jesus Christ didn't come in a stoic form or an Epicurean form. It didn't come as Platonic wisdom or as Aristotelian logic. It wasn't the language of an idealistic politician or a grassroots organizer. It wasn't what the Gentiles would have accepted, and it wasn't what the Jews could have imagined. But Jesus was and is, for all that, the wisdom of God. And he is exactly as God has always promised he would be, if we would be willing to listen to God with humility, which is our lesson here I think one of the more common sources of frustration in our own soul and conflict in our churches is simply that we have never humbly allowed God to fundamentally reshape our thinking. Sure, we're willing to sort of fit God into our categories. We have a a way of viewing the world, and if a Bible verse, or at least half a Bible verse, seems to fit in with that, then great. See, proved I was right all along. But we've never been willing to sit down and say, God, start from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? And then follow him from one end of your Bible to the other and say, teach me how to view myself. Teach me how to view you. Teach me how to view the world. Teach me how to think about right. Teach me how to think about wrong. Teach me how to think about work. Teach me how to think about love. Teach me how to think about family. Teach me how to think about enemies. Teach me how to think We need to do that. And that's not a call to don't read books that aren't the Bible and don't try to understand the big ideas that are shaping the world today. Those are important things. But it's a challenge for us as a church to never let the world dictate the way that we talk about reality as the people of God. To only allow God to do that because the world doesn't understand reality. 
That has been so painfully clear as God has made it evidently clear in just even the last few weeks as in the middle of this massive ontological and epistemological uproar of rethinking who am I and what am I and what is everything and you can invent whatever you want. God's like, what if I drop an objective war right on top of your heads and say, deal with that. All this vocabulary you've been creating over here, I dare you to describe what's right in front of your eyes using your broken, empty logic. So you read your news feed and it's, they don't know what to do. They don't, I literally saw a headline this week that was said, if there's a nuclear holocaust, it will bring a great cost to human lives and also be a great setback for global climate change. That's <laughs> where we're at. And that's what God said was going on. Look at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Paul yet again repeats that divine decision and decree about this world's wisdom. It is foolish. And then he quotes here from Job and he quotes from the Psalms to underscore his point. In Job, God is proving his wisdom over and against the wisdom of the world and showing that behind a lot of what this world calls wise and calls wisdom is just craftiness. It's just deception. It's a ploy for simple greed, simple power, simple manipulation. And God is always catching the world out in that duplicity. And in the Psalms, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. God is coming in this psalm to avenge injustice, to make things right, despite all the plans of the wicked. And God comes and says, all your logic, all your plans, all your your confidence in how things are going to work out, it's all vanity. You don't even know which way is up. I think there's another reason why Paul chooses these two passages, though, besides just this language of God's wisdom overcoming the wisdom of this world. And that is, it is interesting to me that in both of these chapters, it also very explicitly says it is a blessing to a man to be rebuked by God so that the truth can bring him to salvation. And I wonder if that was part of the reason those passages were percolating around in the mind of Paul is he, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is seeking to do that very thing for Corinth to bring them a rebuke from God, to bring truth that exposes their sin and their lies and their error, and not to do it for their destruction or because he's just annoyed with them, but to do it because he loves them and knows that it is the truth that will give them life. And it takes courage to that, but boy, we need that in this world. We need that in each other's lives. So much of what we see today is this approach to to conflict and to suffering that says, yes, come, give give me a hug. Tell me you love me. Tell me everything's going to be okay. Whatever you do, do not talk about my life or any of my decisions or any of my thinking or what's going on. That's none of your business. Why, if we have the words of life, Would we not share them with people? Even if those words that have been a rebuke to our own lives need to be a rebuke to their lives to say, the path you're heading down is not sustainable. It is the path of destruction. Turn to life. Because the alternative, the wisdom of this world, 
It's duplicitous and it's empty. Sometimes what we need to hear is just so simple and so obvious. And that's been laid out pretty, pretty clearly for us so far. You're a temple. Act like it. The world's thinking is broken. Stop using it. But sometimes God's thinking is actually not what we expect. And at least for me, I really enjoyed what felt like a plot twist coming up at our last point, where I was very confident Paul was going in this direction. He's like, actually, no. I'm going to talk about this. And it has to do with our last point this morning, our boasting must be heavenly. Look at verses 21 to 23 with me. Verse 21 begins, So then let no one boast in men. Well, because we are a holy temple of God, because God is the one who must shape our thinking, if we are to be wise, then it makes sense we shouldn't boast in men. Why would we boast of earthly men when our identity is wrapped around the presence of God, not around the presence of men? Why would we boast in men when all of man's thoughts aren't worth thinking? And the only thoughts that are worth thinking are the ones we've received from God himself and humbly formed by him. I mean, that's enough of an argument by itself. But Paul isn't done, and that's where this surprised me, this next phrase that he's going to use. And before we read it, even though you've all read it, uh before we officially read it, just imagine that you're sitting down to write this, and you're coming up with reasons why the Corinthians should stop fighting over their loyalties to people and pursue unity together. What would your third argument be? You're the temple, the world's wisdom is foolishness. What's point number three? I think a lot of us would go with the easy one, right? That, uh, well, don't fight over people who are all just sinners anyway, right? None of these people are deserving of that kind of a, of a platform, that we're all just fallen people, so don't follow them. I think that's the, the obvious one. Or maybe you go with uh, like the, the guilt appeal or the embarrassment. Uh, your divisions are just embarrassing you in the eyes of the, com- uh, of the community. They're, they're just childish and immature. Uh, they're destroying your testimony there in Corinth. You guys should just feel really bad. Right? He, could go, he could go that route. Or he could just go the, the, you know, the pride route. Paul, Cephas, Apollos, I was there first. You should all be on team, Paul. I mean, come on. I'm your guy. And he's going to actually, in just a, a few verses, say, hey, you've got many, many spiritual instructors, but you don't have many spiritual fathers, right? I, I was the one that was there to give you the gospel for the first time. But he doesn't write any of those things. Instead, he says, don't put your boast in men. Why? For all things belong to you. And that's where I kind of went, hmm? Come again? How is that supposed to help? What is that even supposed to mean? What? We're supposed to be working on humility and unity and realizing how foolish it is to fight over all these preferences in the church and, and now somehow like your big punchline at the end is, oh, and all the stuff is yours. It seems so random. And so Paul has to spell it out, at least for me. I'm thankful he did. Verse 22. Everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. 
all those guys they were fighting over. I, I, I want Paul's team. I'm, I'm going to belong to this group. No, I, I'm team Cephas. No, I'm team Apollos. No, no, this, he doesn't talk very well. Well, he doesn't know as much as Paul does. Well, he's not as much fun. He's down there. He's a fisherman, but he's a nerd. But he's a, right, all that fighting that was going on. And, and Paul's like, time out. Do you think this is like the Greek culture where disciples are given to the teacher? Not in the temple of God. The teachers are given to the church. Paul is all y'alls. Cephas is all y'alls. Apollos is all y'alls. What are you fighting over them for? It's like kids diving on a pile of toys. This one's mine, that one's mine, this one's mine, I like this one, you're just dumb, mine's better. They, they belong to all of you. Stop fighting over them. They're yours. But he doesn't stop with where they were fighting. In this next part, he's helping them realize even your quarrel is just so myopic. Not only is it so backwards, it's just tiny. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life. Here's an interesting one. Or death or things present or things to come. Really? Yeah, really. All things belong to you. What a beautiful progression. And just reading it feels like you're watching a curtain go up and just expose this sweeping landscape. And what a perspective that gives us. And I think we need a bigger perspective of the gospel again. As a lesson here, painful divisions often stem from petty thinking. Painful divisions in the church often come from having such a, a myopic view of who God is and what he's doing. It's like a man watching a parade and criticizing all these parts and, well, that part's okay, I like that part, but that part's dumb and this part's dumb and, and then all of a sudden somebody has to come up and tap on the shoulder and say, actually, the whole parade is for you. Oh. Paul, more than I think most, truly appreciated the cosmic significance of what it meant to be in Christ. Of the implications of that, as he wrote in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. Well, like spiritual things? Well, yeah, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yeah, but like not physical things. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This world. It's a gift for those who are in Christ to enjoy to rule over, to have dominion over, to be stewards of. In a little bit, we're going to stand and sing and, and leave and go out there, and you're going to look out over Spokane Valley. It's yours. In Christ, it's yours. It's a bit of a fixer-upper, but God's got a plan for that. There's a major renovation project coming, but it is, it is for you. It is for you. 
that's really cool. You may have noticed that as we walk through this, the things that we fight about, the things that we divide over just almost become funny. When we, when we pause to think of just how great our blessings are in Christ. It's like, really? The planet is yours. The cosmos is yours. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are yours. And you're going to fight about that? You're going to divide God's people over that? And it all hinges on this one phrase that we have seen over and over and over, and that's in Christ. In Christ. Christ is more than everything. Our last lesson this morning, Christ is more than everything. Paul is, is building and he says, hey guys, you're such so being so small-minded about what you have in Christ. I'm yours in Christ. Apollos is yours in Christ. Cephas is yours in Christ. The world is yours in Christ. Life is yours in Christ. Death is yours in Christ. Everything going on in the present is yours in Christ. Everything that will happen in the future is yours in Christ. But you know what's a bigger reality than that? You know what's even more helpful than that? What's more inspiring than that? Put all of that in a box. You belong to Christ. You're his. And he is the father's. Wow, now we've finally gotten to it. This goes all the way to the top. The physical realm was made to be given to us as stewards. Gifted people are given to the church's blessings. Life and death both serve the Christian in sanctification and glorification. All the events that are playing out in the world today are for your good, those of you who are in Christ. Not necessarily for your comfort, because suffering and glory are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And everything that's going to happen in the future is uncertain from our perspective, but what is certain is that it will be for your blessing in Christ. All of that is true. But then picture it all. We're not the end of the story. All of that wasn't for us. All of that works together for Christ. That's why we exist. That's our purpose. That's our reality. The same way that Christ is for his Father. All glory must flow uphill until it reaches the throne of the Father. And he's the kind of God who doesn't just then keep it all for himself. He says, let me share my glory back down with my son. And the son says, let me share that glory back down with my bride. And Romans 8 says, on account of the glorification of the bride, even the universe will be restored to glory. So let's try to pull this whole This whole vision together, the Father in glory with Christ at his right hand and the angels singing praises and the expanse of the universe all around and the saints in holy raiment gathered for worship and dominion. And there in the corner, a couple fools bickering about Paul's lack of rhetorical flourish. And there in the corner, a couple guys arguing about whether you should go to Cephas's or Apollos's Sunday school class. Just puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Perspective that we need 
and that we need to be reminded of regularly. Because man, the things that are right in front of our nose look so big. Don't they? Put your hand in front of your face. Your hand is bigger than the universe. And sometimes you have to be reminded that that's not reality. And a great way to do that week after week is in the taking of the Lord's table together. And I want to prepare us to do that now. And I do that by reminding us back in Romans 8.32, which we just read, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This, this was the price of making all that happen. Apart from the body and blood of Christ as a historical event in which Jesus, God, became man and actually died on a cross, bearing the full wrath of God for sin and making complete substitutionary atonement for it. Apart from that reality, the only thing that's usens is hell. But because of that, Everything is ours in Christ. And this should remind us that everything is ours in Christ. And we are Christ. And even in this as a symbol of the obedience of Christ to the Father, it reminds us that Christ is the Father's. And it reminds us that we belong to each other. And that division and factions have no place here in the body of Christ in the temple that he is building. And so I want to invite us just for a few brief moments to pause. And if you perhaps realize I've dragged things into the temple this morning that do not belong here, would your reflection on the work of Jesus Christ be an opportunity to express gratitude to him and to let those things go? And then we will partake together. Father, thank you for sending us Christ, for the gift that we have in him of grace where we deserve wrath. And thank you for this church. And may it be a temple that would honor you and be a testimony to just what a great Savior we worship. And this we ask in that Savior's name. Amen. It's a joy to be a part of Valley Bible Church, to raise my family as a part of Valley Bible Church. What a wonderful, quirky group we are. A reflection of God's power to choose whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and bring us together. 
so diverse, so different. And yet on this we agree. God has spoken to us through his word. He has revealed himself in Christ. And that's good news. Let's take together 